giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Adam Marchik, CEO and co-founder at Alpine AI. Adam, thanks for joining me. Of course. One of the things I, I'm curious about is what's your day-to-day like now? What are, you, what are you spending most of your time on? You know, it's been fun now that this is startup number three for me. And, you know, all three started with a partner and a one-page idea. And my last one scaled 100 people. So I've been through a bunch of phases of being CEO. And one of the things I love about being CEO is a good CEO's job changes drastically every six months. So in this current phase with Alpine.ai, which we you know, formally announced February 1st, our V1 product is ready to rock and we have our first few customers. And so a lot of what I am doing is around new customer acquisition, chief customer support success, and then also a little bit of recruiting. And you mentioned that you launched February 1st um, publicly, but how long were you working on it before you launched publicly? Sure. So we actually started Voice Labs two years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was the thesis of my co-founder was my customer at Yahoo, my last company, an amazing product technologist who understands consumers. And he came to me saying, hey, this Echo thing is going to be big two years ago. And so we started Voice Labs, which by design was, hey, there's something in this market. Let's go figure it out. We actually built a product, a voice analytics product for Google Assistant and Amazon Alexa, and it became the number one analytics product in the market. Uh, that said, it was always the plan to kind of use our understanding and analysis from analytics to figure out the big opportunity. And so about six months ago, we started building the Alpine platform and then February 1st announced we were closing our analytics business and fully focusing on Alpine. How did you know that it was the right time to do that? It's a combination of market analysis and kind of getting a feel for the market was ready for the solution we were going to offer. And frankly, being intellectually honest around how quickly you can grow a voice app analytics company. Were you um, splitting your time between multiple things or were you full-time on Voice Labs at the time? Yeah, we were always full-time on Voice Labs, but I mean, all of the code we wrote for Voice Labs is now part of Alpine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was a bit schizophrenic where I was still supporting our analytics customers while focusing on the future. Mm -hmm. Logistically speaking, from a financing perspective, is it the same company? Did you have investors in Voice Labs that you had to carry forward? It's the same company. Yeah. And how, were you communicating with investors along the way about the changes that were happening or upfront about the changes oh, that yeah. were going to happen? Oh, yeah. No surprises with your mm-hmm. investors. <laughs> Speaking of investors and starting funded companies, and you mentioned you're on your third one now. Is it getting easier, harder, different? I think I'm more grounded in understanding how things work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think whether a fundraising is easy or hard, you know, Ted Wang, who's now at Cowboy Ventures, talks about the horse and the jockey. Mm -hmm. So the horse is the company, the jockey is the team. Both of those factor greatly into how easy a fundraise is. 
Was the fundraising that you did for Voice Labs easy or hard? You know, it was easy objectively. Uh, it was a little bit harder than it was for Kahuna just because Kahuna, when presented, was so obvious. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of people still don't really understand voice. How far along were you with what you had and what did your pitch look like? You know, we had a first development customer and a very basic demo. And, you know, we kind of relied on our, you know, for what we had tried to accomplish with our analytics product, we were pretty successful. Like we were the number one analytics product with over 3,500 voice app developers on the platform, the number one recognized by both Google and Amazon. Like we had demonstrated an ability to execute. And then because of our analytics business, we saw the opportunity for Alpine. Mm -hmm. So all of that data and understanding was part of the pitch. So how do you describe Alpine to people? Yeah. So voice platforms are here to stay. In the past two years, the number of voice-enabled devices has grown from 2 million to 450 million. And consumers, in addition to asking for Spotify or turn the lights on, uh, lately, in this kind of mid-2017, started asking Google Assistant and Amazon Alexa for product information. And right now, they're not getting good answers. And so for brands and retailers that care about digital commerce and commerce in general, they should be present on these platforms and they should be effective on these platforms. And Alpine delivers them a solution to be both present and effective as the consumer goes down the path to purchase that includes voice now in this new voice-enabled world. And if I'm a big brand or you know someone who wants to, what does Alpine do? Is it a is it a platform for building something? It's a, really a solution. Mm-hmm. So if let's say you're Nike and you don't have an Alexa skill, you don't have Google Assistant app. There's over a billion voice searches per month, and you're not being found. You sign up with Alpine, and you get a Google Assistant app, an Amazon skill, and you start getting relevant voice traffic and you have a really good experience that helps consumers purchase. What does discoverability look like on the voice platforms now? Do you find that when brands are coming to the platform, they need to tell people about it? Yeah, it's a great question. And one of the fun things is it's all evolving. So one of the other advantages you have by working with Alpine is you'll know sooner than if you didn't work with Alpine, since we are very steeped into this market and have good relationships and connections throughout the industry. So, you know, to answer your question, Google has talked about implicit triggering, which is basically voice SEO, Mm -hmm. where you don't have to ask for Nike. You can just ask for running shoes and perhaps Nike gets returned. Amazon, they've talked a little bit about it, but I think there's more to come. I imagine it feels exciting to be on the forefront of something new. Is that what you've sought to do? You know, yes and no, to give you a wishy-washy answer, (laughs) where the answer is yes. So, you know, I'll give an example where I started Kahuna in 2012, which did mobile marketing automation for mobile apps. Mm -hmm. I started building mobile apps in 2001. And for 10 years, it was too early for Kahuna. And when we started Kahuna, it was honestly perfectly timed from a market product market fit perspective. 
But without that mm-hmm. early learning in 2001, I wouldn't have been as well positioned. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you know, being at Facebook in 2008, when Chamath started the growth group, it's really the first growth marketing group ever created. You know, I was early. Mm-hmm. And now growth marketing and growth is a real big deal, which I love executing on. So I was early there. You know, this time I started a company in voice fully knowing it was really early. So we had to construct a company and also how we talk to our investors appropriately. Like if Nike had an amazing Amazon Alexa app, it's not like it would suddenly become 30% of their revenue overnight. Mm-hmm. It's not there yet. But the trend lines show that if they don't get involved now, they're at risk. Do you find that investors are comfortable with that uncertainty or the, the early nature of your work? Uh, some are, some aren't. Mm-hmm. You know, just a lot of it's around, I mean, one of the things around fundraising, it's got to find the right fit. What would you have done as a founder? What and maybe you face this with your other ventures where you're just getting feedback from people around you, investors, that they're just not getting it or they don't think your idea is going to succeed. Have you faced that? Oh, yeah. And everything I've done. How do you handle that? You know, so Joel Peterson was a professor of mine and he's off the charts good. And he said the best people digest feedback. So it's like really writing it down verbatim, really following up to make sure you understand the meaning and not getting defensive, but instead recognizing this is really important to understand and hopefully overcome. I imagine for some people that that's probably hard to not get defensive, to not just dismiss it and think, oh no, I, you know, especially I think maybe in the startup ecosystem, there's this idea of like grit and determination and the product founder who has a vision, regardless of what people say, they're going to push that vision forward. The tendency is probably there to push through that and ignore the haters. But you're saying you really do need to learn from them, digest it. Well, I'm also not saying that those two sentiments aren't are mutually <laughs> exclusive. Yeah. You can have ambition, gumption, drive, run through a wall and have enough EQ to digest feedback and make your own decision on whether it's valid or not. Mm-hmm. As a founder, a CEO, a person responsible for a startup, how do you deal with the, and I, I asked from a point of never having personally done this myself because everything I've done has been bootstrapped, but how do you deal with the runway, the idea of runway, and we have this much time? How does that affect your behavior or your emotion? Yeah, I mean, companies don't die, they run out of money. And the first thing is I have a tremendous amount of respect for the bootstrapper, you know, and the reason you take venture capital is to grow a company artificially quickly, Mm -hmm. where you can make different investment decisions because you have a healthier balance sheet and you give up equity and sometimes control for that. So it's a Mm trade-off. And so I really enjoy (laughs) knowing I have like 15 months of runway. 
and I'm okay when I got nine months of runway, and I am nervous when I got six months of runway. Mm-hmm. And I typically try and prevent, you know, especially from being a VC for seven years. The last thing you want is when you're talking about weeks of runway, because then you just make bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be frank, in this company, we wanted to give ourselves more time to get conviction around our next step. So my co-founder and I took no salary for a few months. And suddenly we had a 10 more runway. <laughs> and we did that because the goal is to succeed. That's a nice segue to the other thing is you've been on the other side of the table as an investor. Mm-hmm. How do you think that influences you now that you're back on the other side as a CEO and someone who's taking money and working on something new? Has that changed your approach or your understanding? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of those things where you said like, oh, if you're not running through a brick wall, you know, either run through a brick wall or you take feedback. The answer Mm -hmm. is kind of both Mm -hmm. where you just have perspective. The more perspective you can have, the better typically your outcomes are. So I understand where a VC is coming from. And you know, actually, I've had a really good conversation. My last company, the lead investor was Sequoia. And the partner there was a guy by the name of Omar Hamoy, who was the sole founder of AdMob and sold it to Google for a billion dollars. And he understood both sides of the table. And he said, hey, we're coming up on a decision where you and I will not be 100% aligned because I have a job that's being the fiduciary responsible at Sequoia. And you have a job, which is being CEO of Kahuna. And there's 90% overlap on this decision, but not 100%. And just understanding when those situations arise and being mindful of that, I understand that, I think, better than most, given the experience. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of exits, in your experience, how much do you personally when you're starting something new or when you're working on a day-to-day basis, are you thinking about the exit? So I would say from a strategic perspective, no matter what, 99% of my mental energy on outcome is focused on building equity value. And if you build company equity value, typically good things happen. Mm -hmm. And then like the rest of it, is details, but other important details. Like for example, engaging and collaborating with larger companies that potentially would be acquirers, or making sure you are have rock solid financials and controls. So if it's time to go public, you're not like, oh my goodness, I should have done these 50 things a year ago. So just preparing. But if you're not growing and you're not creating equity value, it doesn't matter. When you say equity value, what what does that mean? Yeah, it means, I mean, different things for different people. Mm -hmm. Like, I have a fraternity brother, Kevin Systrom, who generated zero revenue, but Instagram got bought for a billion dollars. So they, in theory, had a billion dollars of equity value. For Alpine, as a SaaS software business, there are metrics where people value a company, ARR and churn and growth. So those are the rules of engagement around equity value for my company and market. Mm-hmm. And you're doing that, you're developing that, you're like you're thinking about that on a case-by-case basis for each of your companies and making the decision 
for this, we don't want to generate revenue. That's not where our equity value is going to be. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that's the exception, not the rule. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't recommend it. <laughs> like, to your credit, like, there's nothing better than getting out of jail, i.e. being profitable. Because mm-hmm. then you control your own destiny. Right. For, and as you alluded to, you know, when we were ta- talking about it before, that investment allows you to grow unnaturally fast. And so that's the other side of the the bootstrap model is that nothing I've done has grown incredibly fast, incredibly big. And the exits that we've had as a company have been relatively small. And I'm sort of parsing out for myself now, is that because that's what I believe? Or is that just what we've done because it's comfortable? Because mm. I'm not inherently opposed to, you know, there are some bootstrappers you talk to, there's a whole bootstrapping community where it's like, you know, they fundamentally believe the VC investment culture is bad. And I know that I don't believe that inherently. I think people got to do what they're comfortable with mm-hmm. and what makes sense for the business. Mm-hmm. And whenever, like, this is, what's so funny is, like, I mean, once again, I grew up in Palo Alto, and the first startup I worked for had a $3 billion IPO in 98. So I've always been relatively comfortable mm-hmm. with the high-growth company model, whether or not it has venture capital or not. Like, there's no virtue in taking venture capital. There's virtue in growing 200% year over year. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's about, okay, are you constrained and what are your constraints? Like honestly, right now for Alpine, our constraint isn't money. It's A++ ML engineers. Like we have money we have, and we can get more. Yeah. It's the talent because great ML and NLU experts are very hard to find. The ones you do have, how did you attract them to begin with? I mean, that's a, a multifaceted and recruiting at an early stage company is really hard, but so are a lot of things. The first thing is, is the person excited to work on what you're building? Because these people have multiple job offers. You know, when I can get to, we get to like 20 people and I can do college recruiting, you know, someone took a chance on me at Oracle and, you know, I had two or three other offers, but I didn't have 10 coming out of school. Right now, it's no secret that if you're an A-plus ML person, you got options. Yeah. And they're, op- they're attractive options, too, from big names like Amazon. You know, they're just hiring crazy amounts of people and for large sums of money. So that's the perfect thing. So it's like, listen, typically, I'm recruiting against apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. If it's between Alpine and another early-stage startup, I'm confident I'll win. But then if it's between... Alpine and Amazon, it's honestly not me selling. It's what do you want out of life? Mm-hmm. Like there's no selling here. It's what do you actually want to accomplish in the next five to 10 years? So given that it's hard to hire these folks, there's just not that many people who have this expertise who are on the market. What are the steps you've taken to try to bridge that gap? Well, I think the first is hustle. Mm-hmm. If you don't talk to someone, you can't recruit them. So we have a pretty proactive strategy to try and find as many people who are potentially interested and well-qualified as possible. And once they get past the first meeting where we both are interested, then it's much easier. Mm -hmm. It's really that front of the funnel. That's the hardest issue. And you solve that with hustle. Have you thought about training people? You know, we will Mm -hmm. when we're 30 people. Mm -hmm. We're not yet. So 
just different phases. Yeah. When you're setting out to build a team, how do you think about that? That's actually one of my biggest, you know, learnings is the right word and the wrong word where I've always known it's critical. And that said, now, you know, the, the more I've done this, the more important culture fit is to me. And once again, if you asked me the first time, I'd say culture fits number one. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, you don't fully get it mm-hmm. until you get it. Where there have been times where 60% of my daily job has been managing unnecessary HR stuff. And once you go through that, it's basically like never again. Mm-hmm. And part of that is high quality bar. Because if someone's not that good, it causes friction. Mm-hmm. But it really goes down to like, is this person the right culture fit? And also, what is your culture? You know, Bob Tinker, who is the CEO of Mobile Iron, has been a, a mentor to me. And one of the best things he did, he says, like, was like month eight of Kahuna. He's like, what's your culture? And I started giving answers. Like, no, no, no. Where's your one pager with your culture? Like, define it mm-hmm. and make decisions based on it. How similar would you say the culture is between the different companies that you've started? You know, I'd say... Relatively similar because it's kind of set top down early stage, but then with significant evolutions mm-hmm. based on learning. So what is your culture then at Alpine AI? So the other thing is if you can't describe our culture quickly, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So we are build stuff the world has never seen before, have fun, be intellectually honest. Mm-hmm. That's it. And if you unpack all three of those, there's you know 15 attributes of each. Yeah, but that's our culture. Mm-hmm. So what do you do to determine whether somebody is a culture fit? Well, you have an interview process that aligns with it. Mm-hmm. And when you're inter- when you're deciding whether or not to hire someone, you bring those three things up. What does having fun mean to you? You know, they have to enjoy the work they're doing, mm-hmm. and they also you know. Alex came from Yahoo and they actually had a great thing where we take our work, not ourselves seriously, mm-hmm. you know, so they got to enjoy life and enjoy coming to work. What I hear and, and, and maybe that's not uh, correct, but what I hear that is that they're probably optimistic rather than pessimistic. Yeah. It's hard to have fun when you're pessimistic. Right. <laughs> Cause the, Building stuff that the world has never seen before would be hard to do if you're pessimistic. Having yeah. fun, being enjoyable, enjoying your work. If you're negative all the time, it's not going to happen. But if you combine, and if you combine building stuff the world's never seen before with intellectually honest, right? it's a pretty awesome combination. Mm-hmm. How quickly are you growing now? Uh, I mean, what metric matters? That's another <laughs> thing that's fun. It's yeah. like, it's great. Another mentor advisor (laughs) like gut checker of mine is this guy mark leslie who was a professor of mine he joined and led and ran veritas you know and right after we closed our a round with sequoia and we were growing revenue i like saw him i'm like hey you know we're 40 people now he's like well that's not a metric i care about i don't care about people growth Mm -hmm. you know so first is what metric is it customers is it revenue is it People, all are interesting things. So uh, what's your what, what's most important to you? I was actually thinking from a people perspective because we were talking about interviewing and, and hiring, but I also totally recognize that that's not, probably not the most important thing to Alpine in terms of growth metric. 
Well, it's funny is honestly, or whenever you say honestly, it means you're not being honest. <laughs> People growth is yeah. Our well, it's your biggest challenge first, right now, right? Well, it's tied for our first goal this mm-hmm, quarter, right? It's people growth and customer growth, mm-hmm. and we're it's it's going both are up into the right. But it's an important metric for you at this point in time, right? It is, and it's not a, it's not important just to put bodies in seats. It's right. important because we're looking at our architecture diagram and roadmap, and we have like circles around things that need to be built mm-hmm. and skills slash extra people needed to accomplish our roadmap. Yeah. So focusing on people then, what's your team size now? Uh, we're six. And where do you want to be at by the end of the year? Probably 10. Okay. So, you know, you're not talking huge numbers, but percentage wise, it's a pretty big increase. Yeah. And hiring is hard and you have a niche that you're hiring for that's probably even harder than in general. So do you feel good about hitting that goal or are you worried about it? I feel good. Okay. I mean, this is year 15 for me. Yeah. So do you do it yourself at this stage or are you working with outside recruiters? You doing everything you possibly can? How do you approach it? Yeah. First, we are doing everything we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Everyone at the company is a recruiter. Mm-hmm. That's the most leverageable thing is to find the next great person to join. And whoever outside can help us, great. So uh, don't be afraid of offending me. <laughs> but you know, you said you have this chart with circles on it that need to be done, and you, you have these experts that you need to hire. How do you think about or don't think about the idea of outsourcing to experts? So funny enough, born and raised Palo Alto, 34 years in the Bay Area, three years in Boston. I am not a Silicon Valley biased person. Mm-hmm. I would love nothing more than have engineers, additional engineers elsewhere. So there's remote office and then there's outsourcing. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in outsourcing core IP. And right now, 90% of what we're building is core IP. Mm-hmm. So more than happy to outsource to 10%. But as we're a 100 person team, you know, maybe 30% is not core IP. I actually lived in Bangalore and ran sales for an outsourcing company. So all for it, it's just, where does it make sense? Yeah. So why do you, I think I know the answer, but I'm asking it for the the sake of getting it on the record. Like, why don't you believe in outsourcing core IP? Because core IP is typically built by innovative individuals. And those innovative individuals are not part of your company. It's IP that's lacking. Mm Mm-hmm. So when you graduated, then you went to Oracle and then you went to get your MBA, right? And actually, um, I had to stop. So I did five years in between. Oh, five years. Okay. Funny enough, you know, I was two years at Oracle mm-hmm. and I was like, all right, it's time to switch to business. So I'm going to go to the, do product. And I'd learned, fortunately enough, at Stanford, because I was involved with the startup community, that a great way to find a product job at a startup is to go to VCs and ask them what their best company was or is. Mm-hmm. And the third VC I went to, Sonia Hoel at Menlo Ventures said, why don't you join us? So I was at Menlo Ventures for three years. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to go get an MBA? Did you know that you were going to do that earlier? No. Okay. I knew I was going to start companies. Mm-hmm. And thankfully enough, the first company I started was at night while I was at Menlo Ventures. 
and it was a nonprofit for first generation college kids and it ran for 10 years and served about a half million college kids. You know, I was heavy on technical and product. I was light on finance, which is an important skill for a CEO. And I kind of look at like the best CEOs have a lot of tools in their toolkit, you know, save for like, once again, like there's the exceptions. A lot of people mm-hmm. like base their life on the exceptions, not the rule. Right. Freaking Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg are the exceptions. Mm-hmm. They're not the rule. Like the rule is like Nick Meta at Gainsight or Mark Benioff mm-hmm. or Reed Hastings at Netflix, who are very well-rounded CEOs. And that well-roundedness came from somewhere. It's not like you just woke up one day and had all the skills. So a combo was I wanted to add a few tools into my toolkit. And honestly, I was a little tired. I basically had had two jobs. My day job was Menlo Ventures. My night job was the Glow Foundation for two years. I kind of wanted to take a step back and assess my next 10 years. So when you decided to get the MBA, I'm curious, did you like do a lot of shopping? Did you visit places or did you say, I'm doing this and here's where I'm going and I'm starting next semester or whatever? Well, I mean, the application process is Mm non-trivial where you take the GMAT and then you do a relatively extensive application and then you tell them you want them and then they let you know if they want you. Then you see if there's a match. That takes about nine to 10 months. Mm-hmm. Is that how you typically approach decisions? Or did it, did you find as a founder, uh, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, did you find that process frustrating or was it comfortable for you? Well, like first off, I've been very fortunate that the decision I had made around business school was a relatively charmed one. So it was like really fun. Mm-hmm. And I've had a few of those experiences where it's like, listen, there's no wrong answer. And you got through the part where you want them. And now they're both, you know, or they're willing to accept you. What's the best fit? And enjoy that versus stress about it. Mm-hmm. So, no. I mean, that's, I mean, part of it is I've been fortunate enough. I've had that in the funding process mm-hmm. where I had a bunch of term sheets. And rather than stressing about it, it's like, what, how lucky am I? and reframing and being like, all right, what's the best thing for the company? So do you think that overall getting the MBA was the right thing to do? Yes, but the whole thing is if you approach getting an MBA from an expected value perspective, Mm -hmm. you're never going to go. I like to approach things from a life fulfillment perspective, which you never can be, you know, you never can accurately project an experience will be life fulfilling. But if you have that approach, you typically seek things that are enjoyable and fulfilling and learning for you. And I learned a lot and enjoyed it. I think that's uh, really good advice to people who may be at that decision point or thinking about, I know as a CEO with a CS degree and not having a business background, I often think about where I could level up or where my deficiencies are and whether an MBA is is right for me. Yeah. I mean, one of the things is like Brian Halligan actually I think just wrote an article that the best MBA is being a key member of a high growth company. Mm -hmm. Like once again, from a pure learning or pure financial expected value, there are other things that are more effective. You know, so by no means would I say the MBA is the best way to learn about business. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I think if if I had to think about the weakest area that I have, I feel, and it may not be true, but it's the way I feel that finance is my weakest area. There's times where I'm you know trying to put something together or, or working on a hard problem with the numbers and and have the sense that someone probably knows something about this that I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the funny story that I'll just be open about is like, okay, so I went to Stanford. And I like took the advanced finance classes because I knew I was relatively deficient. I learned some, but then like my internship was at Facebook and Justin Osowski was my boss and he was way better at finance than I was. And then I left Stanford Business School and I went to Bain Capital Mm -hmm. and they're like, whoa, you got a lot of finance to learn. And to their credit, they like let me take classes and also trial by fire like at 30 years old, I was pulling three all-nighters a week because it's like, hey, you either learn this or you don't. Yeah. Bain Capital was my financial education provider. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, period. Yeah. Well, Adam, I really appreciate you sharing uh, with us today. And if people want to get in touch or follow along, where's the best place that they could do that? Uh, Twitter, Adam M. Stanford or alpine.ai. And you mentioned you're hiring, so I assume that's a big push for you now. Big time. Yeah. Any full stack engineers and NLU ML people. Uh, Adam, thanks again. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, do me a favor and tell a friend about it. It really helps. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at CPytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., Let's build something great together.